This is Mix Chris Page. I'm a transgender religious organizer, and I love listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. And I'm Wendy Sheridan. So how are you today, Robin? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I forget currently, this is a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, currently annoyed, but in general, okay. It was a very relaxing weekend. Not so. Yeah, not, not too shabby. I've been waiting for a, uh, a delivery from Nuts.com which was supposed to come Friday and it still hasn't shown up yet. So, so I'm a little lack of nuts. <laughs> lack of nuts. Oh God, that came out wrong. Okay. never mind. We're not, we are not going there. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm not saying anything at all. It's all good. But, you know, this, this weekend was Beltane and that's my favorite of our seasonal holidays. So it was nice to yeah. at least acknowledge that even though I didn't have any official celebration. So we had an unofficial celebration. So we, we burned some things and danced around to you singing first of May. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it was really good. My daughter had never heard it before. Uh, yeah, it's a good <laughs> I don't tune. know that my husband really heard it before either, but I've heard it before. Yes, yeah, so this is the uh, Jonathan Colton Beltane classic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a good song. Yes. Very silly. Very so, good lyrics. Yeah. I might do a version of that for YouTube at some point. It, was, it kind of be cool. I think it went pretty well. <laughs> uh, you, it was good. It was good. I, I The first version I ever saw was on YouTube and they were, the video was done with, I think, World of Warcraft carrier, characters where you could get them to do things and then just sort of screen cap the video oh, so right. okay it was lots of of creatures having sex outside <laughs> so it was very funny celebrating in the traditional fashion yes that's fun anyway do we have some random facts for this we do we do show yes, and i do. think you have the first two facts i do as a matter of fact okay i guess i was thinking about pagan various pagan ways or something <laughs> because okay. the, uh, the first fact I decided to pick was henotheism from the Greek, which I guess was pronounced henotheo theo or something like that, is the worship of a single overarching god while not denying the existence of po or possible existence of other lower deities. Okay. I, that, I find that it's kind of an interesting uh, hybrid philosophy, I guess, or something. So I think it's been used to describe not, not by people who practice Hinduism themselves probably, but it's been, people have looked at Hinduism in that way, but like there's like an overarching kind of allness or consciousness or oneness. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the other, you know, deities and ways of seeing. So okay. it's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, it's a cool word. Yeah. <laughs> and the second fact is that researchers at Carnegie Mellon University found that humans are most likely to perform an altruistic deed when in a bad mood. The researchers <laughs> concluded that this is because helping others can effectively boost our mood and help us feel better about ourselves and our own personal situation. I don't know that I agree with that. <laughs> when I'm in bad mood, I don't want to help anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well... You might be an outlier in the in the research. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how big of a sample of people they. they and have. I guess it also depends on what they consider a bad mood. Because me be a bad mood to me is is where I'm very cranky. So I'm more. I am just as easily gonna bite your head off because you've said hello to me, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to like doing anything else. So. I mean, if I was sad or something, maybe then I would think about it. But I don't consider sad a bad mood. Oh, okay. I don't know. I consider, you know, it's it's the anger, the it's the being enraged. That's what I consider a bad mood. And when you're in that mood, you're not really helping anybody. 
So I don't know. Yeah, I think probably bad mood is is uh, defined a little more broadly by most yeah, people. Like I, yeah, okay, okay. Anyway, it's a term. You have to define your terms to me because I, yeah. <laughs> so, what's fact number three? Fact number three. Thanks for keeping us on track because I'll go off the rails completely. <laughs> uh, my fact is about this month. May is pretty exclusive when it comes to days of the week. No other month in one single year starts or finishes on the same weekday as May, which I found rather interesting because I did not know this. So, for example, if the 1st of May is on a Friday and the 31st of May is on a Sunday, no other months in the year will start or end on a Friday or a Sunday. So That is very strange. I never yeah. Yeah, me neither. I guess it's because it's with math. <laughs> fun with the calendar. Yes. <laughs> wow, very cool. Well, we have a good show coming up today. Uh, I spoke with Rodney Wittenberg and Mix Chris Page, the composer for and one of the people featured in a movie that is called Angels and Saints, Eros and Awe. It's a very cool and interesting film that talks about sexuality and spirituality. Yeah, some of the challenges our culture has had with the two and and how they might merge for other folks um how just all kinds of interesting personal stories and and things told also in dance and music and it's a very multimedia hmm. type of a show it's very cool and I, it was the first interview i did for this show with uh two people who were involved oh, wow. in the, the show so it's very cool i'm, I'm gonna okay. enjoy sharing that with you and then later on, we've got some Ikigai coming up, right? Yes. We're going to talk about another of the four components of Ikigai, and that is what the world needs. And that also plays into defining your terms. But before we move on to the news, we want to give a shout out to our Leftscape listeners. Yo, Leftscape listeners. <laughs> Thank you for checking out the show. And if you're new to the show, hello and welcome. And you can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday. And you can subscribe on our website at leftscape.com. You can also find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And that could be Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, and if you check it out on our website, which we encourage you to do, please also sign up for our monthly newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leftscape. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at leftscape. We also want to say thank you for the recent five-star reviews we've seen on Apple Podcasts. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate the positive feedback that you and your reviews help new listeners find us. And another great way to support us is to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash leftscape. Absolutely. Thanks so much, everybody. Yeah. And now, here's all the news we can handle. Well, the first piece that I found, actually, I think I found this last week, that the German national gymnastics team has decided to change their outfits for because they're now allowed to they have their outfits are now fully covering their legs which they didn't used to do it used to be you know just leotards and and the women's legs were were bare and they were doing that to they're confronting sexualization of gymnastics as a sport so and that a recent ruling by the olympic committee allowed uh, Muslim gymnasts to cover their bodies and not have to have bare legs and stuff. So the Germans are saying, yeah, let's do that. And they did. And their costumes are quite attractive. It helps with the gymnasts, you know, with, you know, they're feeling comfortable performing and, and you know, dealing with stuff because there's been, if you haven't been following gymnastics news, uh, there's been a lot of sexual abuse that's come out over, that's been going on for decades in, in the gymnastics world with the, you know, the trainers and the doctors and stuff. So I think this is a, this is a nice deal. Okay. I also found this morning that the United States has reunited a handful of immigrant families that were separated at the border during the Trump administration. They started with like four families and they've picked, I think, another 30 or so parents that they're going to bring back and reunite with their kids. This is like a, a pilot program to, because the United States doesn't have the 
not the not the infrastructure, but they don't have the facilities or the people or the processes set up to reunite families. And they're doing this small pilot program to get all that set up so they can start getting all the kids back with their families. Right. I heard something about this. And they're they're reuniting in the U.S. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Because I yeah. think I probably what I saw about it was like the the right wing complaint about it as opposed yeah. to the story of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, okay. it's really, That's it's good. really sad, but I mean, it's sad that this happened, but it's good that they are starting to correct this. And the secretary of DHS said this task force has been working day and night across the federal government and with counsel for the families and our foreign partners to address the prior administration's cruel separation of children from their parents. So yeah. it's slow, but they're doing stuff. Yeah, that's encouraging to me because, I mean, originally I felt like it was going to be like, whoops, lost your parents. Sorry about that. Like, yeah. that's what it sounded like. It was Well, horrible, that's kind of because you know? they did. They did lose yeah. them. And, one of the, I think one of the problems is when they send some of these people back, you know, they, they can't, they can't find them again, the parents or the parents, maybe because they were leaving because they were scared for their lives. Maybe they got killed, you know, right. and it's, I, I don't want to think about that part. I want to think about the parents and the kids getting back together. Good yeah. thing. Good things. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and another good thing that I saw in the guardian this morning is and I, I think we're going to have to just put a link to the video on our website. In Singapore, they have this ad to encourage people to get their COVID vaccines, and it's disco, and it's really cute. Oh, it's, nice. It's a very catchy <laughs> tune, very catchy disco tune about getting your shot. So <laughs> so come to our website and watch the video. <laughs> yeah. Because we'll I, post I, it there. I definitely want to check that out. And while we're on music, I should also talk about Vax Live. Yes, which is was has already been recorded on the second, but it's going to stream on May eighth uh, on a lot of different channels. And that is the concert to reunite the world is a global broadcast special airing on May eighth. Yep, that will uh, celebrate hope as families and communities reunite after receiving the vaccine and call on world leaders to step up for equitable distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. Definitely cool. Let me see some of the people. So this who- is basically people getting back together and hugging after a year of not. Well, it's a, it's a, it sort of celebrates that. I believe that the people that they invited to the actual performance are frontline workers mm. uh, who've all been vaccinated. And it's really like some famous musicians and, and other people getting together to talk about the importance of getting vaccinated and to deal with hesitancy, that sort of stuff, but also to really call out to governments to do their part to help like the world as global citizens. Yes. You know? And if they're if they're doing something for individuals to contribute, I'm not exactly sure, but I will check into that. But uh, hosted by Selena Gomez, uh, the campaign chairs are Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Oh. <laughs> and, and Harry actually gave a pretty good speech. I was watching. Uh, are they still the Duke and Duchess? They still kept their titles? I think they kept that title. They didn't keep she she's not keeping princess, but they're still Duke and Duchess. I'm not okay. sure. All right. I, I, understand their whole, <laughs> I don't know how there's any some, of that there's works. some part of it that they left behind, but they still are this part of it. Okay. But it could be of- it could be Duke and Duchess because <laughs> what's his name? The Duke of Windsor wasn't really a Duke. He was the abdicated king. Maybe. So he called himself Duke after oh, that. Okay. Yeah. You know, I was once called the Duchess of Devo, which made me very happy. <laughs> That's all I know. Well, um, you are. But- you are the Duchess of Devo. <laughs> but there are other performances by Jennifer Lopez, Eddie Vedder, Foo Fighters, Jay Balvin, and her, and appearances by people from Ben Affleck to David Letterman to uh, Sean. P- like it's a whole thing of lots okay. of famous people. I think it will be good, and it's going to be on a lot of different channels. I think on the eighth of May. And what else is happening? England has done a study that was looking into how people are having trouble reintegrating back into society after the lockdown is after they're vaccinated and they're allowed to go out or go to the pub or do whatever. And and they're all having feelings of anxiety 
about being in crowds and stuff like that. And, and it, that article kind of spoke to me because I am experiencing that right now, actually. So yeah, I'm vaccinated. I'm, I'm like fully two, it's more than two weeks after my second vaccine. And I am still not comfortable being in a crowd or being around a lot of people that I don't know. So I, I'm, I'm almost ready to be like hugging family members that I'm not living with, but <laughs> I'm not even quite there. So that well, was an it, interesting article. Yeah, it sounds to me, I mean, there's some, there's some healthy hesitancy, I think there, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to go out and I definitely want to do some outdoor socializing with people who I know are also vaccinated and who have also been taking this seriously all along. You know, so slow, like taking a slow roll into being in, like, I don't know that I need to go into a giant crowd. In fact, they're telling us that's not the best idea right now either. So, yeah, you know, I'm okay with that. I do feel some anxiety, though, also, that I think is not related to medical fact, but there's, it's just, uh, I've been so internal and so just to myself for this time. It hasn't been healthy to be so isolated, but now it, it is hard to yeah. figure out the steps back, you know. Yeah, I used to consider myself an extrovert, so it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> and one more piece of news that I think is, well, obviously what's going on in India right now with COVID is not good news. It's very devastating news. There aren't even words for what's happening right now, which is really frightening and sad. But there are some ways that we can help, and I wanted to include some of those in our show notes. So those will be there. Crooked Media gave mm -hmm. out a bunch of places that you can donate, like from Seva Kitchen to uh, Kaliash Satyarthi Children's Foundation to Transgender Welfare Equity and Empowerment Trust, which is uh, nice that there are lots of marginalized communities that are hit even harder by something like this, you know, yeah. uh, give, you know, give India help now. There's a, there's, there's a bunch of uh, organizations I can put some screenshots up about where to reach them. And also, who else? New York Magazine also cre uh, created a list of 10 different places, some a little bit more mainstream maybe, but reputable places that you can also donate to help out. So at least we can do something like UNICEF and Indian Red Cross Society and those types of places. Yeah. So, you know. So they, need, uh, they need help. They need help. Yes. It's Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's some movement toward like getting rid of the normal patent barriers on the vaccine so that mm. more people can make different versions of this and get it to people. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because there's all kinds of like, yeah, there's times for profit, but there's times for like, yeah, we need to save the world right now. <laughs> people need <laughs> to know? remember Jonas Salk. Yes. He did not ask for any money at all for the polio vaccine. He just... Yeah said here it is make it use it yeah. so yeah yeah let's do that and, <laughs> <laughs> and i think that's all the news we can handle today this podcast is sponsored by Slightly larger jeans. Do you plan on sitting at home for four to six months eating takeout? Maybe you should consider slightly larger jeans. On sale now, where you bought your current jeans. And now, back to our podcast. Hi, this is Rodney Wittenberg, and I'm here to say that whenever I want to lean left, I listen to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Well, I am here today with two people, Rodney Wittenberg and Chris Page, who are in, involved in the creation of the forthcoming film, Angels and Saints, Eros and Awe. Mix Chris Page is an otherwise identified writer, educator, organizer, and coach who is the author of Otherwise Christian, a guidebook to transgender liberation. Chris was a founding executive director of Trans Faith, a multi-tradition, multi-racial, multi-gender gender advocacy organization by and for people of transgender experience. And Chris has continued as operations director for Trans Faith while 
They launched Otherwise Engaged Publishing, providing a platform for prophetic, transgender, intersex, and otherwise voices. And Rodney Wittenberg is a co-producer of Angels and Saints and also handled the camera, composing, and editing for the project. He is an Emmy Award-winning modern Renaissance man who is fascinated with what makes things tick and how to creatively intersect with them. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome to be here. (laughs) It's great to talk with you. So tell me about the origins of this film. What what got each of you involved with the project? Well, the film starts with my co-producer, Vic, who always tends to uh, just amaze me as a 70-something cisgendered straight male. It, It is amazing to me the things he comes up with that he wants to make a movie about. So this is Vic. Uh, this is the second film that I made with Vic. Our first one was a film called Caregivers, Portraits of Professional Caregivers, Their Passion, Their Pain, which was a look at secondary trauma. And, and so I guess about three years ago, Vic said, I'd like to make a film about wholeness, but I want to look at it through the lens of sex and spirituality or sex and religion. And uh, we had a number of conversations about what that would look like, who we would want to interview, And then we set out to try and find people who wanted to share their personal story about their journey to wholeness. That is an ambitious undertaking. (laughs) That's great. And how about you, Chris? Yeah, so I've known Vic for 25 years. We started going to church together. And so for me, it started when Vic said, hey, would you have, uh, you know, coffee with me and talk about some of these things, sex, gender, wholeness, whatever. And so we had sort of a brainstorming conversation and, and later he was like, we're doing it. (laughs) Would you come, would you come be on video and do the thing? And so, so, you know, I've known Vic for a long time and, you know, I didn't quite, I didn't totally know what it was going to be. Right. Cause you're, you're just a talking head on the screen, but um, I trust Vic and it's been delightful to, to see it come together and see all the work that Rodney and everybody's done to, to just make it beautiful. So. Wonderful. So I don't know Vic, and I don't know our listeners do. So what is his last name, and what oh, does sorry. he do? Sorry, his name is Vic Comfer, and <laughs> okay. he is the co-producer and director of Angels and Saints, Eros and All. Nice. Thank you. Chris, I'm curious to hear a little bit from you. Um, what do you feel are the connections between sexuality and spirituality, or Eros and All, as the title says? Well, I, I, so I'm transgender and non-binary. So I have a queer part of my story and then a transgender part of my story. And, and the trans part is really what I've been working on a lot for the last 20 years. So, so for me, I think there's just something really deep about being trans. You, you ask questions like, who am I? How do I fit into the world? What does it mean to be human in the way that I'm human? And, and those are really ultimately spiritual questions, right? And so we get distracted by some of the details and people think about medical interventions and all that kind of stuff. But at the core, it's really about like, who, who are you? And, and who are you to other people? And so there's just really, if you, if you talk to people beyond the surface, right, beyond the, the, the narrative that's expected, you often get to these kind of deep questions in a way. And so that's, that's where I start uh, in terms of those connections. Mm-hmm. I mean, typically there's a there's this disconnect that the experiences or those parts of life are supposed to be separate, at least in our American culture and a lot of the world, really. So what happens when the two are split? Well, well I mean, part, part of what you're pointing to is the impact of colonization, that like Europeans, Christians, cisgender, heterosexual folk came from Europe to Turtle Island, right, where there was gender diversity, where there's sexual diversity, where they're what we now call people of color, right, indigenous folk, and 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 brought this binary thinking, right, imposed the idea that there's two and only two genders and they're mutually distinct and don't intersect, that sexuality needs to be controlled, that sexuality is dangerous. And so there's this legacy around 
not not necessarily spirituality overall, but like Christian religion specifically, as well as some other traditions in different ways, but especially Christian colonization impact in the world. And 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 so there's the, there is this there's become this split like that. Jesus wasn't like that. Like Jesus wasn't like oh scary mind body split kind of stuff. But that has evolved over a couple of thousand years of, of Christendom and Christian empire and European empire. So, so I think that's where it comes from. And then it has an impact in very personal ways for all of us. Yeah, I would say, just like Rev Bev says in the film, society becomes sick. We're, we're sick. We're, if we're that split, we are not well. And then we act out of that. Well, there's a comedian who once joked about the fact that wherever you go in America, you will find a church and a strip club kind of next to each other as you go down the street in the small town. And then right near that, you'll find a liquor store and then you'll find another church and then another strip club and then another liquor store and then another church. And that's America where we repress the thing that we think is what we've made other or evil or bad. And then we, and then it becomes distorted or bastardized, or I don't you know. There's so many different words I could use, but it becomes perverted. And I, and when I say perverted, I'm not talking about the acts that people do. I'm talking about how they think about them. Right. And, and then the sort of original meaning of to pervert something to twist it in a negative way. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah. how it's yeah. used, and mm-hmm. and how we are so disconnected from each other. You know. And, 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 and yeah, it's, it's, so that's what I think happens when a, a culture or people are not whole. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific benefit, do you think, to discovering the power of sexuality within a religious or spiritual tradition? Or how, how would that be different than just leaving the tradition that gave you the negativity about sexuality? I think sometimes when we leave a tradition, there, it's it's reactionary, right? So so if the if the dominant church is like you're bad, and y- your response is like no, you're bad, <laughs> like you're kind of reembodying, you're you're redoing the same thing. You're just re- being reactionary, and I think ultimately spirituality is about transcendence, and so. To, to go deeper and more transformative to say like, what, it, what would it mean instead of just reacting to one another and pushing each other away in that kind of way in this trauma or that trauma or that domination or this domination, what would, what would happen if we tried to transform our relationship? And so spirituality is both, you know, embracing spirituality is both reclaiming that place where this violence is happening, where this religious violence is happening, but it's also about that actual transcendent, thing right it's like not just about trans you know about the binary and reclaiming but but also about this transcendence and and making the two will shall become one kind of you know non non dualism like how do you how do you get there you get there through spiritual practice and and there's thousands of years of tradition to then draw on for that which is which is fascinating right because i grew up sort of being told like not by my parents but by culture like there's no way to be gay and Christian, like transgender wasn't even on the the radar at at that time, but like, there's no way to be gay and Christian. But in fact, there's like all these resources in tradition about how gender is fluid and how it's, you know, like there's all kinds of mystical traditions for thousands of years to actually draw on once people started to dig in and and again, reclaim the, the tradition in that way. So there's, there's great resources there. Yeah. I also think that, um, you know, when you, I think the challenge for us is, is like when I think of Jesus, we're often, I, I was raised Catholic, so I was told that I'm supposed to worship Jesus, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I, and as I read scripture, it always felt off to me. It always felt like to me what it, what it, what I sense was, no, I'm not supposed to worship him. Worshiping him would be trying to emulate him or imitate him imitate the actions. And that would mean to be loving. It also would mean that I'd have to be on my journey, not his journey. And that would mean that I'd also have to be open. And that would also mean that I have to not know. Meaning that when I come to someone who is new, I have to be vulnerable and be open and be willing to experience them for who they are. And 
when you're trying to organize a culture, that's one of the scariest things in the world. So then you make rules and you have to do this and you have to do that. And once you start making rules, anytime you institutionalize something, the core of it begins to die. Mm-hmm. And I think that, the, you know, without having this wholeness, having the mind, body, soul, where is joy? Where is celebration? Where is, where, where is the totality of love? Where, where did, where, how can that exist without those things being present? It, I mean, is a celebration of God really meant to be torture on earth? It was interesting in doing research for the, the film, and I will admit I'm not a religious scholar, but one of the things I found interesting is when I looked around for a physical celebration of God in the, in the three Judeo-Christian Muslim religions, you could I could find the whirling dervishes. I could find dance in Jewish culture. The only thing I found in Christianity was flogging. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, there's got to be something. Po- I couldn't. I, and I, I hope someone will share it with me <laughs> and let me know if there is something that is a positive physical expression of ultimate joy and love in Christianity. Now, I... You know, I mean, there's the Eucharist thing, but that's a, I mean, it's a physical act, but it's not, it feels kind of rote to me. I mean, at yeah. least, you know, that's what that seems. Yeah. To be. It's, it's yeah. not. And then, you know, when the Lutherans and the Episcopalians took over, it became more about the earth and work and you must be simple. And it's, it's not the most joyous expression of, right, right. Um, you know, so. I mean, I do know people who might, differ on how flogging is for them, but, you know, <laughs> but that's uh, neither here nor there. Well, it's part yeah. of the whole story, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and again, uh, yeah. that also is part of the other thing, too. I guess it is in, the, it's not the thing, it's how right. you do the thing or experience the thing, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, actually, I do have a question for you, Rodney. Um, what has been your experience in filming and c- composing for this is there some a way that you tell the story through sound and image that really became prominent to <laughs> so you? One, like how, how would you talk about that? Once we did the interviews and uh, we did, uh, you know, I set up a, my, my assistant editor, Rick, and I set up a, a rough cut. I saw that we had a huge problem. Mm. <laughs> it was a massive problem. And Vic and I went back and forth a number of times trying to solve the problem. And the problem was that as our interviewees who are all just wonderful and spoke eloquently about the subject and were very open, you know, as, as Chris was and so many of the other people we interviewed were re- really gracious and sharing their lives with us for in the, you know, for the film that every time I went to put an image up, it didn't match what they were saying. So if someone, you know, like one of the uh, people we interviewed is polyamorous. So if I put up an image of a man and two women, it just looked like porn or it looked, it looked patriarchal or it looked misogynistic. There was no way I could, I couldn't find a way to put up certain images because they're such, so ingrained in our Western way of thinking that no matter what the person was saying, what you were seeing said this, you know. It, it, it said our history. So there was this, this problem of how do we show what people are talking about? And so, you know, with a number of conversations back and forth between Vic and I, we came up with the idea of using the, all the arts. And so we use dance, we use animation. And as I went further into that, I started thinking, oh, well, why not start distorting what we're looking at? And not distorting it to mean that it's bad, but distorting it because what everyone is saying is changing how we see things. So let me do that to the images on the screen. So I kept trying to come up with new ways of looking at the image on the screen and looking at the dance and looking at the things that everyone was talking about. So that... I think was one of the ways we got to visually solve some of the issues. And then musically, I started approaching it like I would a traditional scoring where I said, okay, I'm going to score this film 
And I had some library, some music from my own library that I started putting in. And I said, okay, I like the way this works. I like this works. And it really was, we were getting ready to do the last screening. And I had this brainstorm of, this is all wrong. I don't need score. I need songs. And when we start the film out with a song and we end the film with a song, why don't I just use songs throughout the, you know, as opposed to traditional orchestral score. And so, so I started frantically looking for songs that match the mood of what people were talking about. And there is a little bit of score in there, but mostly it's, it's these songs that I found or that I had written or dug up from my library that just were perfect for the moment. And a few of them I found from other songwriters and asked them if they would allow the songs to be in the film. Nice. Wonderful. Is there something, um, that you learned? Did you did you learn anything surprising uh, in making the film? Like the, the, the anything that someone even 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 through your process or just something that people said. Still, that you how much learned. time do you have? How much time <laughs> I'm still learning. Um, yeah, I, I a couple things that really struck. One is particularly in Chris's interview. They talked about the two spirit people in the uh, in their poem. Otherwise. And I didn't know in, about that. And so blew my mind <laughs> and started doing all this research and started mentioning it to people like, did you know there were two speared people? And, and uh, one of my friends who's a massive film guy, don't you remember seeing that movie in the seventies with the, the native American? Guy? Oh, Oh, is that what that was? Oh, okay. I didn't get that. And you know, I, that, that's just one thing. One of the other things I was struck by too was in doing the screening, depending on who we showed that film to one of the things, and this is a little complicated, but where people sit in relation to their quote unquote wokeness, how old they are, how far in or far out of a movement they are. And uh, how they think about what people are saying. And this is really complicated, but one of the things I was struck by, so one of the people who watched the film is a young, younger, when I say younger, I think the, the, I think the average age of the people who we interviewed tended to be, you know, the tail end of baby boomers or generation X. So I was inter- interviewing, I was talking to someone who was in their early twenties and they had some of the issues. They had issues with some of the things that some of the people we interviewed were saying. Said, "Oh, we don't refer to this this way anymore, and this is not how we talk about this." And I'm like, "Wow, this is going to make this very complicated." So I ended up having a conversation with them and expressed this, and they were like, "Oh, I never even thought about it. I'm so into my own activism that I didn't think about someone who's been an activist for." 40 years who's in their 60s, they have a completely different experience of how to talk about this than I do. And if I start condemning them for saying it wrong, I'm actually not honoring what the work that they did. And it just opened up this whole uh, for my, for this whole way of thinking about how to look at a movement. And, you know, I, I've, I just finished a project where I was looking at the civil rights era. And it was much easier for me to see because I would talk to young um, African-American activists and they just have a completely different experience of the civil rights movement than I do being 57. And when I talk to people older, their experience of it is different than mine. And so, so I had some inkling of this way of like how to sit inside of or think about how we communicate with each other across the area so that we're not, we're all learning, (laughs) we're all being educated, but at the same time, we're not, we're not alienating the people that we actually want to be with us. And so that was a huge learning for me. It's something I've never thought about before, never even entered my mind, just, just the generational difference in experience of, of how we go through a revolution. Mm, I like the idea that you said earlier about being meeting someone with a sense of openness mm-hmm. and being curious about oh how do you describe yourself and your experience you know mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So Chris, I'm interested in whose voices and stories we get to hear in this film. How how does the diversity of gender and sexuality and even spiritual background play a role in the different stories that people have told? 
well, Rodney can probably speak a little bit better to to all the voices. He spent lots of time with the the the, the, the various video. I've seen it a couple of times in terms of the uh, the, the other participants. But it, it's you know it's it's coming from a relatively Christian perspective. That's not to say everybody necessarily identifies as Christian. There's uh, I think oh there's Jewish um, mm-hmm. participants as well. So so in that Jewish and Christian kind of realm. And I think I'm the only sort of explicitly transgender voice. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Although other people, I think, use they, them pronouns, and it doesn't really come through in the film. So white and black and straight and gay and poly many kind of things is is the range. So so that's kind of kind of what you're looking at. Yeah. So one of the one of the really beautiful things about the the film for me watching it as as an audience member right is the way that not just the background b-roll sort of what Roddy was talking about looking for background images but how the actual participants were singing or talking about dance or having poetry and so it's just like a really beautiful holistic right i think often uh, when we talk about sexuality and religion it can be very rigid and dogmatic and we need to argue about the bible and do these kinds of things and maybe we argue about science but you know the the arts really bring a different angle to it and i think that's really kind of at the heart of i mean it's not a movie about the arts but i think that embodiment right of something other than just intellectual discourse is really at the heart of the of the film about how do we make these connections that are really profound and one of the only ways that I think we can get at some of those mystical realities right is not through dogma and categories and things right but but about going deep into the arts where you can kind of apprehend it like you you might not be able to capture it right that's the nature of the divine you can't capture the divine you have to apprehend it you have to experience it you have to let it come to you and that's, I think, what the arts help us to do. And so that's part of what happens in the film. And it, I think it's pretty great. Nice. That's one of the things I've always loved about poetry, especially, that you can express things using words that go beyond what you could say in a normal linear sentence. You find some other, it brings something else to it, you know? Absolutely. So that's really, that's awesome. Any other stories or insights you'd like to share about this movie? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I like what you both were just talking about because I, I, uh, you know, in, in not only in this film but in all of my work, I think that there is a way that the arts, boy, it sounds it sounds so cliche and grandiose, but they they're healing and they, let me rephrase it: they can be healing, and they can change the world. I think again, I'm putting those caveats on because I think it is the how, and that you do things. So you know, just as someone can have a spiritual awakening doing ayahuasca they can also exploit it and use it as a you know as a drug to get off on and so it's not the thing it's how you use it but the arts do have this i think it's the closest thing we get to being well for a male i will say someone who identifies as it's the closest i get to experiencing what creating life is like is making art and and with that i think it it has the power to heal and communicate and inform and change people's lives wonderful one of the themes that comes out in several of the interviews is the the idea about breaking out of the boxes that that we've been put into. And it it was interesting because the the, the filming of the segments was done independently, right? It was just me and the producers in a room and then a different person and the producers in a room. And that's how you do it. It's not like an actual conversation, but, but then when you weave all those conversations together, it's, it's funny because there's this dialogue that happens between the people, I guess, because of the kind of questions that get asked, right? But not because we're... Anyways, it, it, was, it was fascinating then that, that several of us were talking about being in boxes. And for me, it was about uh, being in a box of trying to be a woman and is a box of being a man more what I should shoot for. And I was like, I just don't like boxes. Like, I'm just not into that. It's not working for me. Um, and other people talked about being trapped in boxes or escaping boxes in different ways. And and so I think that, again, gets back to this idea of transcendence and, and religion and spirituality. And it's just, just part of what I, I just, it's, yeah, it was just fun. It's just fun to see how these things come together. 
in that kind of way. Wonderful. So when do we get to see this? Where where can people find it? So that's a big question. We're, we're, um, go to our website. That's the answer. The Angels and Saints, com. I believe it is. And We'll make sure it's in our and, show notes. Uh, so. We'll be letting people know when we're going to start doing screenings and on, on a larger scale. We're, uh, we're in the process right now of sending it off to film festivals and we're getting press for it and we're letting getting people know the word out. And we should have a on-demand version that people will be able to see sometime late spring. We're just taking a look and seeing what the film festival possibilities are. We already have some... Uh, some conferences that want the film and we're very happy about that and some educational institutions that are going to be using it. And it has been very exciting that it's being embraced by both the spiritual community and the sex community, I guess is one way of talking about it. And, and also gender fluid community as, as we're sending it out to people, uh, they're all going, no, we'd like to show this. Yeah. We'd like to show this. So. That's great. So, but in, that didn't answer your question. Yeah. Well, you'll be able to see it soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, we will send people to your website and make sure that they, uh, they check it out. So thank mm-hmm. you so much. I wish you success. Thanks, Rodney and Chris. And we'll be talking thank to you. you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you. So welcome to our Ikigai segment, where we talk about what Ikigai is. (laughs) And Ikigai is a Japanese term that means life's purpose. And it is achieved by the confluence of four areas. And the areas are what you love to do, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you're good at. And the last time we had one of these segments, we talked about what you love to do. No, right? I don't think so. I think that was the last one. Well, all right. Well, what was it? If it wasn't I that. Think I, I kind of remember we talked about what we're good at because oh, okay. I thought it was funny that neither of us could just say what we were good at without talking about what we're bad at. <laughs> so it was also like going into uh, in- imposter syndrome. syndrome. Okay, so we did what we were good at. All right, this yeah. this time we're talking about what the world needs. And I had initially, when I first discovered the whole concept of ikigai, which was a while back, a few, many years ago, I could always get three of the things. The fourth one I could never get, and the fourth one was what the world needs. And I think that was because of how I defined what the world needs. That was you know? about to be my question. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, it's it's interesting because it's hard for me to think about it completely objectively because because we're talking about ikigai, I'm already thinking of well, what what can I do that the world needs? But I'm curious about just the pure sort of what is the essence of what the world needs? Like, is there something that you're thinking about? Well, when you start thinking, when you read what the world needs, you think about the entire planet and you go, okay, well, we have global warming and we have overpopulation and we have huge economic disparities. And it's it's really a caste system that nobody calls the caste system. We have that hierarchy of of economic hierarchy. So we have like the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor and people in between. And it's hard to move between those strata. You know, I think about global problems. And then it's like when you when you start thinking about it like that, and you're just, you know, you're, you know, you're just a little drone bee flying around. It's hard to see how anything you do is going to positively affect the whole global situation, like in yeah. a way that's that's noticeable. Unless, of course, you're thinking of it in terms of hurting it more. You can make a lot of garbage <laughs> and, and and do things like that. But that's not right. Yeah, there are ways that you <laughs> cannot like avoid. You know, just do better recycling or something like that. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But that's not. But that's I guess not we're thinking of no. something broader than that or bigger than yeah. that. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that gets me very frustrated because, you know, I mean, if I was, you know, 
Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or somebody, I could affect the globe with if I make a decision about doing something, I could affect a lot of people, many, many people. And I'm not. So my first thing was to reduce what when I when people when it's like what the world needs, you know, it's like, yes, there's 7 billion of us on the planet. But if you're looking at individual lives, if you can touch individuals, and improve and help them or give them something that they need, then I think you're doing what the world needs. Because if all of us little drones are just positively affecting, you know, a handful of people that, you know, it's like, it's like any kind of exponential growth, like COVID, you know, except that you're spreading joy or love or, you know, happiness or, or whatever. So, I had to, you know, you have to kind of set your, set your mind, you have your mindset, set something reasonable, you know, and, and, and if you think that way, I've actually achieved that with music in a couple of places, because I've had people tell me, you know, your song saved my marriage or, or that that's really what somebody said to me. I was kind of blown away. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I thank you. <laughs> But, you know, when you think of it that way, then doing what the world needs is a lot more achievable on an individual basis. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I have struggled with this one, too. And I think it might be an imposter syndrome thing here as well. I'm not sure. But I guess I wanted to be sure that what I was thinking about what the world needs was accurate and not kind of a cop-out, if that makes mm, sense. You know, okay. like part of part of me feels like I I should be a better activist or something like that, you know? I mean, I've done a lot of activism in various capacities over years, but I'm not, in many years, I haven't been the person like who's really like out in the street yelling about things necessarily, you know? And part of me feels like, well, we need bigger, bolder, activists out in the world, you know, of, of many things that we need. But, but what I found that I'm good at is creating spaces within community. Like if there's a, if there's a need for a space for alternative people of various types, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a person who likes to create space for that and make events happen and make spaces for people to connect and communicate. And that kind of thing has been vital to me in my yeah. life. I know that, go, you know, going to organizations where, like, even just meeting, like, the people at Rutgers Gay and Lesbian Alliance back in the day when I first got to school and things like that was like, mm -hmm. wow, okay, there are people like me. This is important, you know. <laughs> so I guess I wanted to be that person. And then I was like, well, am I doing that just because I'm lazy and I should be doing other things that are more important? I, I don't know. But I think... I do believe that that type of act, action is important, just sort of holding I, space. I think, I think so too, and I think the world needs that. You yeah. know, and that's and that's another thing that that has to happen on a on a small level, a micro level, not a macro level, because it's you can't. I don't know that you could make a space that. Well, I mean, that's a great ideal to have the entire world be a space where people could be comfortable being themselves. That is that is a noble goal. Right. But that also assumes that people who would object to other people's existence aren't objecting to people's existence anymore. You know. Right. And, and the way that, that those conversations happen is a, on a small level. They have to not, they have yeah. to happen on a small level cuz otherwise, right. you know, if you get four people, five people in a room, it's hard to have a conversation or mm. like 20 people in a room, 25 people, you know, it's, yeah, there's will, some, there's some, uh, there's some number where it, it into, like breakout groups. If you have more than, yeah, it breakout groups of four or five people. So you can right. actually have meaningful conversations. See, and that's and, the kind of stuff I love. I love those kinds of like weekend retreats where 
people really do intense work together like that mm. and talk in groups and have exercises or whatever, you know, and it sounds very hippie, and, but it, <laughs> it works. It, I think it's like a way of staying grounded and growing and being yeah. able to talk about things, you know? Well, those kind of, those kind of intensive experiences where you're away from your normal life for like a couple of days, two or three days. It's, it's, I, it's not like we used to do that when we would go to the festivals, but those would be for a week. And, and really when you're on the festival grounds, like these are pagan festivals, it really is like another world. People are behaving in a way that's, that you don't really see in everyday life, like just normal, like interactions. I would, I would be merchanting there, you know, vending, you know, just stuff, random, a lot of, a lot of music stuff, but a lot of other random crap I'd be selling. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, people would come and they'd be nice. Like an honest advertisement. Yeah. It's random crap. Come on for random crap. But, you know, my experience doing that is not at all like your typical retail worker. I never had to deal with any, any quote, Karens, unquote, you know, <laughs> nobody came to me and, and, you know, tried to get free stuff or, or, you know, so the, you know they, we, we, we didn't have any of that. It wasn't, people didn't interact with other people that way. And it was like, and you could leave, for example, like you could leave your, your stuff, you know, unlocked or, you know, in your tent and not be there and, and you have a completely reasonable assumption that all your shit will be fine when you get back to it, that nobody's going to get in there and, you know, take things or anything. So, and that is, that's not a typical experience out in the, in the general world, you know, and it take you know, so you have that experience and you, and you kind of bonded in a lot of ways with the people because you've, sort of been with them for, you know, four days, day and night, just with these small group of people. And, and you get very close and then you go back out into the world and you're stopping at the rest stop on the highway to get gas and to pee and everybody's being a jerk. And it's like, Oh God, I'm back in reality. I hate this. So (laughs) I think that you really hit on something. Just the idea of retreat time is something that people need, you know, Mm. Or I guess you could say the world needs, well, you know, I mean, most, I would think most or all people in the world need some kind of recharge, Yeah, you know, and feeling like being part of community. And I think that is universal, really. Yeah. You know, if you think of what the world needs for Ikigai, that as I, I think it's also part of, you don't want to damage the world, or the piece of the world that you are able to touch. And that includes the people around you and the, the creatures around you and the, the plants and everything, the environment. So whatever, whatever, if what you're doing is benefiting that area that you're in and improving it and improving, you know, just pushing outward slowly, you know, like, like getting to know your neighbors and, you know, it's like build. It is. It is like building community, and 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 it's and it also, I guess, plays into that pay it forward kind of movement, where if you know your ikigai is actually empowering or inspiring other people, even just by example, you know, or if you do a piece of art that somebody really it cheers them up to look at it, you know, that I think would count. So I think you could check the box. Is my point. You know? Yeah, I agree. I think that we we humans we need to understand our worth. And I don't mean it in the egotistical way. It's like there's a way that like you could just walk around with all kinds of like false confidence. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm like trying to get at like really understanding that we have we have value. Like we all have value. And we have value beyond capitalism. Yes, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's what I mean, because I think a lot we compare, I mean, I know I compare myself a lot with, am I successful enough or am I successful in the spe- specific way I want to be enough or whatever that is, but that's not, that's not who we really are. 
No. You know, and I think that Ikigai does have that balance of, you know, we can pursue some of those things and, and, and we ideally want to be in, in a place where we're pursuing something that is sustaining that feels really right, like inherently right. Yeah. And I think that I've had trouble t- too, like understanding that, like the music that I've made really has mattered to people, you know? Yeah. And, and that's great. And it's really good to hear that that's true for you also, you know, <laughs> and that that's a, that's a thing. That's, that's important. You know, I, I think that sometimes I avoid doing that deepest work and that's what I work on within myself. Mm. There's something, and, there, and it might be like a self-worth hesitancy thing or something that I know where the real work is that feels like what we're going for in Ikigai. Uh-huh. And I don't always allow myself to go there. And I think that's part of my, my process now that we were talking about, you know, writing through things and working through things to be able to be more in that place more, yeah. more often. Well, it, it's a scary place. Yeah. Because it's, you're very, you're very vulnerable and, and it's also, you're, you're vulnerable. So if, if there's a negative reaction, it's going to really hurt, you know, from, from outside. But I also wanted to, to just bring up briefly, because this, this, I saw a meme this morning that reminded me of it, that we are really, really this country and, and our society that we've been raised in and that we live in is very capitalist focused. And, and that's why, you feel guilty if you're not, you know, earning a certain amount of money or you're, if you're not working constantly, you feel guilty. And that's something that we were all brought up in and, and it's, it's not necessarily healthy. No, it's not. And it's not typical of a lot of cultures. Yeah, I know. It's like a very American thing that's kind of extreme. And it's like, yeah, it's like, I know, it's, I know. It's the Puritan work ethic just taken to the nth degree. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think Ikigai will, you know, if you if you really are looking into all of these things, even even the part where what you can be paid for, that it has to get decoupled from capitalism. I mean, honestly, we have to get decoupled from capitalism, right. and it's going to be I hard. L- yeah. Well, I like the way you described it when you were talking about communities and cultures where it's the concept is more about every everything being provided for. Mm-hmm. So you're doing work that that is meaningful and you have everything you need. And it's not necessarily like you're making X number of dollars. It's that right, right, community yeah. together, however things are working out, like everyone's contributing and everyone's... yeah. Doing it's like, okay, you know. That's the the community that in the, one of the books about it in, in this community in Japan where that has the most number of people over 100 years old. Right. That it's the community, it's a little village and they all do things together all the time to do things, you know, to make stuff. If like like if the there's a, like people have like a place where they live and I guess they cook there too, but they don't have like a craft room and, you know, they don't have like different rooms to do their, their crafty things or to make things in their house. They have a place in the village that everybody goes to. It's like a maker space. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of using American terms for this and it's not really a maker space, but they have a, they have a few places in the community like clubhouses and it would be like the gardening club or the woodworking club and everybody goes in there and they make stuff and they make stuff for themselves and for the community itself and also to sell to outsiders so the the community has in, uh, revenue to to fix things and buy things you know it's a lot less individualistic and a lot more mutual support and and I think that kind of a community is is not a bad thing to have, you know? No, it feels really more and more important to me in one way or another to have something that feels like that. It doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be like a communal living arrangement in the traditional sense, but mm-hmm. I don't know, people that you can rely on and vice versa and yeah. that sort of mutual support, that feels, see, that's starting to feel like it's getting to the heart of what the world needs actually. <laughs> to, creating spaces where people feel legitimately supported, mutually supportive. Yeah. You know? And I think that that can happen 
I mean, you could be pursuing whatever you're doing, but to have some kind of home base where it feels like that, where you were actually contributing to something like that, that sounds amazing. And it's been something that I've been wanting in my life. And I do have communities that feel a little like that, but they're not, maybe not enough like that, ultimately. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, you know, capitalism kind of gets in there. It has its, its, it insinuates itself in our culture. And so I'm thinking specifically about uh, something that was going on in the pagan community many, many years ago. There was a group of people that wanted to buy some land. And then the minute it turned into money stuff, people got very selfish and the and the whole communal idea kind of fell apart. I, and I think that probably happens more than just that one instance that I was aware of. I can attest to the fact that that is a thing that happens. <laughs> but it's actually good. I mean, it's good in the sense that if people are thinking about doing something like that, to talk talk it through. And when you get to places where there's conflict, it's, but sooner, it's better to know it sooner than later. Oh, yeah. That Certainly. it could continue to work, but it might be with a different subset of people or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's usually what happens. And actually, now I'm thinking of a second place where that kind of happened as well. So, and you've been involved in both of them. So, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that's something, I guess, community is something the world needs. And I feel like the world needs everyone's callings in one way or another. You know, some of us, I I remember when we were at the beginning of the whole Trump era thing, some of us got together and we're like, oh my God, what what can we do? Like, it just was so enormous and so crazy. And, you know, I had one friend who was like, well, environmental issues are a thing I can work on. Like, I can't work on everything, but that's something that really calls to me. You know, so she would learn about environmental opportunities to help or to what she could pass on to other people that we, how, how we can, what we can do, you know? Right. And that, I, I like that a lot because it was focused and you don't stay in that place of paralysis. Right. Well, yeah, you, that was just pick something and do something. But if, especially if it really feels like that's the right. Yeah. Right name for you. Yeah. So should we give our listeners an assignment to think about, what it is that that is calling to them that would help the world on a micro or macro or in between level, and I then tell us great assignment. Tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Thomas Limoncelli. Web hosting by InMotion and remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash leftscape. Thanks for listening.